Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. We're going to start at Exodus chapter 29, verse 35, and we're going to read to uh, verse 10 of the following chapter. Do for Aaron and his sons everything I have commanded you, taking seven days to ordain them. Sacrifice a bull each day as a sin offering to make atonement. Purify the altar by making atonement for it and anoint it to consecrate it. For seven days, make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. Then the altar will be most holy and whatever touches it will be holy. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. Offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning, a pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting uh, before the Lord. There I will meet There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting, and the altar will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Make an altar of acacia wood for burning incense. It is to be a square, a cubit long and a cubit wide and two cubits high. Its horns of one piece with it. Overlay the top and all the sides and the horns with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Make two gold rings for the altar below the molding, two on each of the opposite sides to hold the poles used to carry it. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Put the altar in front of the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law. Before the atonement cover, that is where the tablets of the covenant, that is over the tablets of the covenant law, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on the altar every morning when he tends the lamps. He must burn incense again when the when when he lights the lamps at twilight, so that the incense will burn regularly before the Lord for the generations to come. Do not offer on this altar any other incense or any burnt offerings of all grain offering, and do not pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron shall make atonement on its horns. This annual atonement must be made with the blood of the atoning sin offering for the generations to come. It is most holy to the Lord. May your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Good morning. What the world needs now, you've probably got a song going through your head, is leaders. In our fractured world, in our complicated world, in a world of dictators and disease and dislocation, we need leaders, not just strong leaders, but wise leaders, not just strategic leaders, but sacrificial leaders. We need leaders for gospel ministry. Now, when I did economics at high school, which seems like a thousand years ago, I learned the difference between supply-side and demand-side economics. Some of you might have 
come across those categories as well. That sometimes we provide a product and then fancy people buy it. They didn't know they needed it. They didn't demand it until it was there in front of them. The supply of the product helped people do the purchasing. We need leaders for gospel ministry because gospel ministry is not demand-driven. It's supply-driven. People in our world don't know that they need the gospel. They need leaders to supply the gospel so that they'll understand that they need this message. We need leaders who are prepared to take the initiative and stand against the culture which dampens demand for those deep things which would make our lives satisfying. We need leaders, gospel leaders, whose identity is so fixed in Christ that they don't build their own personal identity around their status, because there ain't none, income, because there's not much of it, or those leaders who want to get their rewards now. In gospel ministry, our rewards chiefly are later. What the world needs now, what the church needs now, is leaders. And so these three weeks, uh, this week and the next few weeks, I'm preaching about leadership in the Pentateuch, this week from Exodus, next week from Leviticus, the week after from Numbers. And it's not surprising that there'll be lessons on leadership in these books of the Bible because in these books the people have just come out of Egypt are moving to the promised land and now they need leaders more than ever to bind them together to help them get to their destination. There's lots about leadership in the Pentateuch. But perhaps more surprisingly is that one of the chief categories, the chief words that's used to describe leaders in these books is not the word leader. It's the word priest. The priest, as described in this part of Exodus and elsewhere, is a really significant leadership category, but our eyes might glaze over, our ears might not be quick to hear that. But perhaps even more surprisingly, the priest, as described in these texts, is not kind of what you might think because this priest we learn in Exodus, wears a turban like a king or a prince. This priest is interpreting the law like a prophet or a teacher, as well as making sacrifices at least twice a day. So when you read these texts, when you hear the word priest, Think in your minds, oh, this is talking about a leader amongst God's people. And I want you, I want you to lean into being a leader in your church. Now, I know you might not see yourself that way. You might not have many responsibilities. You might not think of yourself as the leadership type. But let me assure you, having come to college, People will start seeing you as a leader even though you don't see yourself in that way. And people will be expecting a whole lot of things of you 
quite rightly, because you'll be amongst the best trained in your congregation, in your ministry. So part of what my agenda is in these three weeks is to help you start thinking of yourself in a new way. I want you to be confident as leaders, not merely managing people or administering tasks. That's perhaps part of being a leader, but in uh, theological terms, being a leader, my big point today and in the next few weeks, is helping people to experience the Lord, to meet the Lord. That's what a Christian leader does, as well as the other tedious things that you know are on your to-do list, but you wish probably that they weren't there. This city needs more Christian leaders. Our state, Victoria, needs more Christian leaders. Our nation, the world, needs more Christian leaders. So I'm asking you today to put up your hand, not literally, just on the inside, to get ready to volunteer to start seeing yourself in a new way. Now, in these chapters of Exodus from, say, 25 to 30, Moses is receiving on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, instructions. And there's a whole lot of tasks that the priest has to do. The priest provides bread for the table in the holy place and provides oil for the lamp and makes remembrance for the people and enters, at least the high priest, the holy place once a year and makes daily sacrifices morning and evening, uh, provides incense, makes sure the incense is rising as a sweet aroma to the Lord, makes atonement, collects taxes, washes clothes, and hears God's voice. There's a whole lot of tasks. And if you read through these four or five chapters, you'll be kind of overwhelmed by the detail. There are lots of tasks, but is there any sense in which these tasks are prioritised, that some are more important than others, or some are done in order to achieve something else? Do they have anything in common? Is there any pattern in these chapters? Is there anything that we can say is more important or less? What kind of theology do these tasks represent? Well, flip back a few chapters to Exodus 25. I'm trying to make the point, what is at the heart of the priest's job description? Moses in chapter 24 has received the covenant on the mountain. There's been a covenant ceremony honouring the responsibilities of the people to God. Then uh, we have in the beginning of 25 uh, a description, the first uh, 22 verses, a description of the Ark of the Covenant where God dwells. We read that in verse 22. There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant I will meet with you and give you all my commandments. Of course, the Ark of the Covenant is really significant, right? It's 
a very important place that only certain people on certain days are allowed to enter. Of course, that's a significant focus of the tabernacle. But immediately after, the next most important thing is to prepare the table and to prepare the lampstand. A table of gold with baked bread on it, bread presented daily as a picture of God's presence. And a lampstand which provides light, which never goes out. I don't think it's an accident that these two job descriptions come immediately after the description of the Ark of the Covenant. God has promised to meet his people. And so the next most important thing is that the priests do what they can to show the importance of God meeting with his people in providing this table and providing this lampstand. Perhaps, perhaps the table and the lampstand are high up in the priorities of the priest. That's a clue, but it's reinforced in a couple of chapters' time. You'll see in chapter 28 uh, the clothes that the priest needs to wear, the ideal priest, And in chapter 29, the consecration of the priests, what they need to do to show that they are holy before the Lord, a a long sequence describing their ordination. But isn't it interesting that immediately before chapter 28, oil for the lampstand is described, an important task for the priests, the end of chapter 27, And immediately after chapter 29, we get the paragraph that Billy read for us, highlighting sacrifices and the incense and the lamp. Bracketing the the description of the priest is again the lamp and the altar of gold on which the incense or the bread might be placed. Placed. Perhaps this is a second clue that the heart of the job of the priest is to make sure people know where they can meet the Lord, what the Lord is offering to them when they meet with him. The the task of the priest is to make sure that God's presence is taught and experienced. Both light and smell. Light offering light in the darkness and a sweet smell to mask the stench of blood and sacrifices. And we'd note as well in these chapters that some of the equipment is in gold and some of it is in silver and some of it's in bronze. On the outside of the holy place, the place where sacrifices are made and where People are washed. The elements are in bronze, but inside the Holy of Holies, things are of gold. It's almost like you have to make the sacrifice and wash yourself outside the tent before the priest can go in the place where everything's gold to enjoy meeting with the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Perhaps that's a third clue as to what priorities are here for the priest. You passed by 
the bronze altar and the bronze washing bowl on the outside before they go in to see the gold vessels. You have to walk past the places of sacrifice before you can enjoy the places of presence. So there's a whole lot of things here that the priest does, but perhaps some of them have priority. Perhaps some of them are uh, instrumental to others. Perhaps some of them you do in order to do the next thing. Perhaps there's an order. Perhaps there's a pattern. So what's the heart of the priest's calling? What's at the heart of their job description? It's helping the people experience the presence of the Lord. There's a whole lot of tasks. But when you boil down their significance at the focal centre is helping people understand that the Lord is present with them. And it's only through sacrifice that we can know him in the first place. Or if you want to put it in a slightly different way, the job of the priest is to be a guardian of grace. The job of the priest is to be a guardian of grace. Yes, of course, offering sacrifices morning and evening, but behind those details is to help people understand how they can know closeness with the Lord, how they can experience, how they can meet the Lord, which is not a right but a gift of which the lamp and the incense and the bread of the presence were signs. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to be like these priests. That doesn't mean wearing a turban, though for some of you it might be your thing. It doesn't mean wearing certain kinds of robes. Being like these priests at heart means being guardians of grace. That's our calling as a royal priesthood. We're all in this. That's our task altogether. The priests were like the shock absorbers who were highlighting the holiness of the Lord and were trying to minister such that sinful people could meet the holy God. The priests in their ordination and their tasks show that God had made a way. God wants to be with his people. And the priests are the ones who take the risks, who put their hands up, who own the responsibility to help people approach him. The priests were the, like the shock absorbers. The priests were like the cartilage between two bones. My technical knowledge at this point is kind of vastly outstripping what I actually understand. But I take it that the reason why we have cartilage between two bones in our knee is so that we don't experience that pain when bone on bone moves. Yeah, thank you, Jackson. Exactly right. It sends a shiver down your spine. The priests are like the shock absorbers. The priests are like 
the cartilage, helping these two people, the people of God and the people of the Lord, to meet safely and joyously. And that's exactly what the end of Exodus 29 says, if you can turn there. Twenty nine forty two for the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of men before the Lord. There, the Lord says, I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated my glory. The heart of the job description of the priest is to be guardians of grace, to help the Lord meet with his people. So verse 44, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests and I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. That's been the whole purpose of them being brought out of Egypt and having the tabernacle. At the end of chapter 40 of Exodus, we, we learn of God's glory filling the temple. That's what he's wanted all along, to be with his people. I will dwell among the Israelites and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What is Christian faith? Well, Christian faith at its heart is the Lord Jesus dying as a sacrifice so that we might know the presence of the Lord. Christ is our saviour so that we can call him God. As Peter writes, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Or from Hebrews 9, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? Christian faith is not merely talking about Christ's death and resurrection. Christian faith is talking about Christ's death and resurrection. So we might help people meet God. Christ was the ultimate shock absorber who manages to bring together God's holiness with sinful people. So the moral of this story is be like Jonathan Edwards. Now, for some of you, you might not realise that that's a joke. I've spent the last 20 years reading about Jonathan Edwards and the, the point of the Great Awakening, the Great Revivals of the 18th century, everyone in England or in the American colonies at this time was Protestant. That was, they were Protestant countries. But people had lost appreciation of the Lord's closeness. They'd lost appreciation of or the access to the power of the gospel. The culture had started to believe that God was distant, 
that comes from enlightenment thinking. So the great revivalists of the 18th century preached how God was not distant but close. And the whole point of Christian faith is not that we can subscribe correct doctrine but that we might know and experience and meet the Lord. So the lesson for us, perhaps be like Jonathan Edwards, it's not to offer rams or wear robes. Our job description as this royal priesthood is to be guardians of grace. And there's no one in the room who doesn't have that capacity even if your job at the moment is not to be a senior minister. Our job, of course, is to point people to the death and resurrection of Christ and then to explain it, its point is that people might know the Lord. Our job is to help people meet God. That's what being guardians of grace is all about. And I want you in your church services week by week and here in chapel to meet God too. That's why we meet. And some people say, oh, uh, what's, what's your job, Reese?" I might say my job is to lead a church or my job is to give lectures or something. But in a sense, that's just the, the crazy first sentence behind it. My job is to help people meet the Lord, right? And in church services we do that. In church services we don't just sing songs and uh, hear sermons, say prayers, all those are great. Our job is to meet the Lord together, not just individually at home in my quiet time, but together to discover his riches uh, as a community. And in your youth group or in your small group, in your church, your job there more generally is to help people meet the Lord, not to stress rules or judgment, but grace. Our world is longing for grace. Our culture is a place of judgment. But our church can show a better way. where love and kindness and prayerfulness reign. But it's, of course, not just the case that we want people to meet God in church. We want those who aren't Christians to meet God as well. Turn, to me, turn with me to Romans 15. That's in the New Testament if you're confused. I'm reading from Romans 15, verse 14. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. So he's praising the Romans. Yet, verse 15 I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again, 
because of the grace God gave me, so God has given a particular grace to Paul, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, those who aren't believers, he gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Well, you might think from Exodus 28, 29, that the job of the priest is never identified as preaching the gospel of God. Those words aren't there. But, of course, that's what we've seen today. That's at the heart of their job description. And Paul's understood that. He's understood that he has a priestly service. He's like a priest because he's wanting to win the Gentiles to Christ. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles too might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Yes, be like Jonathan Edwards, but more profoundly be like the Apostle Paul and pray that God would raise up more and more guardians of grace in our world and in this community. May you be leaders in your church. <laughs>